On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, time for our slightly belated look at what's making the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Um, a lot of it is relating to the fallout from um, the Kinahan sanctions that were announced during the week. And one of them is the story that you heard Tina mention on the news headlines at 11 o'clock, which is that the Kinahan organised crime group is extending its reach from boxing to rugby, a senior guard has revealed. Uh, this is the front page of the Sunday Independent. The assistant guard commissioner, John O'Driscoll, has said that an investment company linked to the cartel leader, Christy Kinahan Sr., has sponsored a rugby club in Spain. And he says that he suspects the is also involved in other sports. He says that a company associated with Christy Kinahan Sr., which is called CVK Investments, has been involved with the sponsorship of a rugby club in Spain, which may consequently have unwittingly become vulnerable to the corrupting influence of organised crime. And there is a similar uh, story on the front page of the Sunday Times, which again also finds that there has been uh, extended reach of the Kinahan gang. Um, The front page of the Sunday Times tells us that the US was given intelligence linking the Kinahan cartel to the money laundering activities of terrorist groups in the Middle East and South America before Washington decided to impose sanctions on the gang. The information outlined the Kinahan's involvement in money laundering with terrorist groups affiliated to Iran and their financial ties to narco-terrorist groups in Colombia, including the ELN and FARC guerrillas. And John O'Driscoll has also given an interview to the paper in which he says that the Kinahans had been reckless in choosing people to assist them with laundering money because there was a potential that it was being used to finance terrorism. Uh, he says, Gardi are building a global alliance whose aim would be to arrest and imprison members of the cartel and to seize their assets which have been valued at €1 billion. Euro. One billion euro, just an astonishing amount of, of, of wealth accrued by the gang. Um, the intelligence services also believe now that the Kinahan leadership is operating under the protection of the ruling elite in the UAE or its security services. Uh, the paper points out the diplomatic efforts by uh, by Ireland to have Christy Kinahan and his sons, uh, Daniel and Christopher Jr., expelled from the Emirate have so far been unsuccessful. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, a slightly different security story, which is that the government is setting up a cyber-secure building at a secret location in Dublin to counter what is seen as a growing threat of cyber attack from state actors and international criminals. And if that sounds like something from a spy or thriller film, um, then that is pretty much what the junior minister responsible has likened it to. Uh, This is an interview with Oshie and Smith who says that um, Ireland is building a sensitive compartmented information facility or an SCIF to try and thwart electronic surveillance and cyber attack. The idea is that basically you have a terminal which is separate to all of your own other military intelligence which therefore is a prerequisite to be able to access the, the files and security of others. Uh, so Green Party Minister Oshin Smith has given an interview to the paper where he outlines all of that. Um, the front page of the Mail on Sunday. New children's hospital costs out of control. Uh, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has come under fire over the snowballing bill for the National Children's Hospital. As sources close to the project revealed that construction costs are galloping away galloping away due to hyperinflation and soaring wage demands. Several members of the Dáil's Public Accounts Committee have called on the Minister to provide up-to-date costings for the development, which has been beset by delays and cost overruns. PAC member Nasa Harrigan, who is also the chairperson of the powerful uh, Oireachtas Oversight Budgetary Committee, uh, told the Mail on Sunday there is now huge concern that the costs are now out of control. Chronic labour shortages are also adding to the single biggest development in the state amid escalating tensions between the main contractor and the government over more than 900 disputed cost claims. As we know, the official revised budget for the hospital is 1.73 billion euro, which would make it one of the most expensive hospitals in the world. But a source close to the project says that this revised price tag is also now unrealistic. And if that wasn't getting you depressed, then the front page of the Business Post um, is not going to make for easy reading of you this morning because we learn there... 
that key projects in the government's 165 billion euro national development plan are at risk of being scrapped or delayed if construction costs continue to soar. A review of capital projects that are in the pipeline has found that weaker than normal interest among construction firms for new public works contracts uh, with inflationary pressures making many projects with strict strict fixed pricing contracts commercially unattractive or unviable for builders. So the idea being that if you were to have a contract where, like the children's hospital, you intend for the price to be capped at a certain level, is now unattractive for builders because of the rising costs of inflation and labour. Michael McGrath has warned that a sustained period of increasing prices for key construction materials could have a detrimental impact on the National Development Plan and he says it is his understanding that there have been examples where the level of competition for contracts is not what we would have expected at a level that we would have had in the past. Um, that is your tour of uh, the very depressing uh, front pages. Uh, I'm joined in studio by uh, broadcaster and journalist Aideen Re- Finnegan who is the presenter of the How to Pivot podcast and by Aidan Regan from the School of Politics in UCD. Um, Aidan, I, 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 I despair a little bit at the idea that all of the big infrastructural projects that are supposed to see the country through for the next two decades probably now can't be built or certainly at least can't be countenance on the budget that we thought because of just how expensive it's becoming to do anything. Yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, I think though on a slightly more positive note. (laughs) Please, please do be positive. I mean, if you read between the lines of what's being said, it's not that it's not doable. It's simply confronting the reality that prices are going up, contracts are fixed and therefore inevitably from the private sector's perspective, they want a little bit of flexibility to ensure that they can deliver. The fact that there's not sufficient competition for those contracts is probably reflective of the fact that we live in a society whereby there's so much demand for construction across the private and public sector. There's so many things going on that inevitably, you know, if you're in a position to command a better pay increase or more profit, then you will. Uh, So So is that that part of it then? So if there's, if you have, for example, 27 European countries all tendering for major works at the same time, that actually you're in competition with each other and that only makes uh, the the inflation problem worse. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that I've thought about a lot and I don't think we talk about it enough in Ireland. Like we are an island (laughs) off the coast of Western Europe and there's lots of stuff happening right across the single market. So the question then, I think for government is not so much on the cost but what kind of very smart policies can they put in place to incentivise more activity in key sectors why is there not more proactive lending from our domestic banks for example to domestic kind of construction firms why are we not seeing a very vibrant innovative construction sector those are things that I think are are more difficult to solve and I would imagine it's less about the cost of capital and the price there but more about the competition for labour we probably Mm. have a serious serious labour shortage you know and then if you think about everything all the construction activity in Europe I mean if you're in Germany you know when you're you're on a land border with many different yeah. countries you can get lots of Bulgarian workers to come over and mm. transiently enter into the economy to do lots of work it's much more difficult here because we're because we're an island so how do you maximize the labor in term and also bring down the cost while simultaneously delivering yeah. good value for money like and, it's not and easy. given that you are an associate professor at the School of Politics and International Relations in University College Dublin surely you've got an answer up your sleeve and how do you do that then? well I would be putting a lot of pressure on the domestic banks to be you know much more proactive in terms of providing flexible and low interest loans to facilitate a more vibrant innovative construction sector and we need to be talking about how do we bring in also you know higher skilled labour uh, mm. in order to basically fill yeah. these, these, these well, jobs Well the, the labour shortage is one thing but yeah. if, you, if you want banks to be more competitive in lending to the construction sector does, is that not the, the industrial version of the government saying they can't put more money in your pockets because it's going to make inflation worse than it already is Well I would I think it's like I think it's more about facilitating smaller construction firms to compete for some of these projects. I would imagine the number of firms that could realistically compete for some of those large contracts by government, you could probably count on one hand. 
mm. right? If even. Uh, so therefore, that gives these firms obviously a certain monopoly power yeah. over pricing. Uh, so why do we not have much more competition in that sector? I mean, it's a very, it's a, I don't have an answer to yeah. it, but I think part of it is that many smaller, medium-sized construction firms would argue that they just don't have access to the capital. They don't have access to those type of resources that would enable them to compete mm. and potentially deliver better value for money. So again, if so, we're talking but, but, about but, a market... But, but if we're talking about like a, a children's hospital that, that is now probably going to cost two billion plus, and that's a hospital that was going to cost 450 million when it was first conceived that there's many more people who can deliver a project for 450 million than there are people who can deliver it at five times the price possibly but I, I don't know to be honest <laughs> <laughs> this is the honest answer it's also, uh, it's also interwoven with the you know the chronic labour shortage yeah. is that you know you're talking about how Germany can bring in Bulgarian workers very quickly they can probably they probably have an economy that facilitates that like we have a housing shortage yeah. Yeah. and we have so a very e- even if we were sharing a land border with somewhere that had why would they come labor? here yeah you know and you know and and that obviously drives up the wage cost as well but puts extra pressure on, on everything else so uh, do you want to open a sweepstake Adrian on how much we are going to finally pay for the national I, I dread I dread to think I mean Yes, as you said, I, it's very hard to imagine it's not going to breach the two billion um, yeah. price tag, which is politically toxic. But, uh, you know, I was kind of looking into when we first found out that we breached the one billion euro mark a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, I was watching Iraq, this committee's there and it was like, this is this is, you know, 1.4 to open the building, another 300k mm. to to equip it. Yeah. Right. So that's 2019. We've had a pandemic We've had, you know, we've had, you know, whatever implications from Brexit bites since then as yeah. well. We have our perma crisis. How was it ever, ever going to stay at the one point seven billion? Uh, perma crisis. Not- God, that's a uh, that, that's well, it's true. But I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a kind of a worrying uh, label on how everything is going. Uh, just to give some context uh, for all of this, the Business Post has helpfully produced some statistics from um, the CSO talking about construction inflation. And, and this is only for the last year. So your point, eighteen that the last price was set in 2019 it would make you wonder just how much things have gone on um there are now significantly higher prices for timber which has gone up 64 percent uh, in the first quarter of this year it seems alone um, steel has gone up 27 percent electrical fittings have gone up 18 percent and cement has gone up 11 percent and overall inflation in the construction sector which includes wages and transport as well as materials prices is running at a rate of 8.3 percent according to the society of chartered surveyors and the department of uh, finance also last week said that the country was entering a period of higher for longer uh, inflation across the economy generally um, it kind of does make you wonder Aidan where, where does all of this end like it's like if even if inflation was to stop today or tomorrow are we just now faced with this kind of higher baseline cost of doing business and, and putting food on the table and feeding your, your kids and heating your house like it's going to be this way forever like you're not going to have is there, there's, not, there's no sign of chronic deflation that's going to come along and make everything more valuable for money in the future is there? No but if you put it in the context of the past 15 years I mean if you for the past 10 years the bigger concern facing central banks and government was the threat of deflation depending on the sector depending on the economy yeah. I think you know the, the, the world has moved on a lot since our macroeconomic economic analyses of inflation in the 70s. But a lot of the models, a lot of the way we think about it is still very influenced from that period. It's clearly differs by sector. And what you've just outlined is clearly within the construction sector, they're confronting with rising prices in key important commodity goods. And a large part of that, of course, is related to uh, the decline in reliable and cheaper fossil fuel energy. Mm-hmm. On top of the yeah. fact that the commodities, the minerals that are necessary to go into the extraction of so many goods are also shocked by things like a war, you know. So, you know, what do you 
do in response to it? The, sh- the honest answer is probably not a whole lot. <laughs> and hopefully, <laughs> That's the spirit, right? yeah. and, and ultimately, you know, you would have to think that, you know, in, an, in a competitive dynamic market, there is a possibility to drive down the cost of the alternative. Right. Yeah. So w- thinking differently about how we build, for example. But to answer your question directly is where does this end? We don't know. But ultimately, most of the forecasts would suggest that it might max out at about six to eight percent inflation. The next two or three years, let's see what happens. But if we're in a situation where we have three, four percent inflation or even five percent, that's not that bad. We have a tendency to call these things, for example, high, I've seen inflation of five percent called hyperinflation. It's not mm-hmm. right. Hyperinflation yeah, we're not talking is 30, like 40%. We're not talking. Like, yeah. It's totally different, right? The economy is in a good position in Ireland. The fiscal position of the state is actually very healthy. Given everything that's just happened, you described as all the different perma crises, right? <laughs> the fact that the government is potentially going to be running a budget surplus, right, next year is an extraordinary not, situation. There's no way we're going right? to be running that. That's, that, that's, that's the plan. It, based on gross, modified gross national income, even, it suggests... Even plus, plus 100,000 Ukrainian after, refugees. Uh, exa- maybe with that, even if it is, let's say we have a, a, a deficit of 1%. 1%? Really big deal, right? Yeah. The government can still enter into the market tomorrow and borrow 10, issue 10 year bonds at one and a half, one point seven percent 1.7%. The cost of capital is still low. Yeah. So overall, things are actually not that bad. The government does have the tools to tackle and solve many of these yeah. problems. It's not like, so the whole obsession with inflation, inflation, the issue really is the cost of living for low well, income so what, households. Well, this right? is, this is what, what I wanted thing. to get to because yes, okay, fine. The, the state can tolerate the, the value of money declining by 5% or whatever, mm. but I suspect Aideen, if, if inflation was going to be 6 or 7 or 8% and then it just levels off and it stays at that high level. You've got this enormous gap between the amount that people take in because their wages haven't kept the same pace at all. And if it costs, something that costs 100 euro this year is 108 euro next year yeah. and you're not earning any more or any less money, then that that's going to be a serious problem in the long term, isn't it? Yeah, and I, obviously, I mean, we have all the forecasters saying we're not looking at a recession and that the war in Ukraine is probably not going to, to prompt it. But I just keep thinking on a the the about the everyman I mean it's costing so much to fuel your car your house mm. the shopping trolley is so expensive now that that's going to depress other areas of your spending like cutting out the holiday all the nice things you know and, and that's what we know people need to keep spending on that to keep everything going so um, I, I mean I'm looking at that from a very uh, small uh, base but I just I don't see if, if those numbers build and people don't have that disposable income I don't see how that doesn't get us into trouble Yeah uh, which is maybe a little bit of why uh, maybe the state has already had a little bit of foresight on this because we learned on page 3 of the Sunday Independent today in an entirely separate note um, that the state is considering paying for singers comedians and even jugglers to perform in pubs in an unprecedented attempt to revive arts across the board and the nighttime economy and there are also plans for night of the museum style events at our cultural uh, cultural institutions through a program of late openings uh, throughout the summer and events then throughout the, the better period which I suppose is a sign of what you were just saying there Aideen that if um, if people have less money to go out and spend recreationally that the, the money you spend recreationally is somebody else's income yeah. that actually we're kind of, kind of moving towards a world where basically the state has nationalised the arts sector trying yeah. to make sure that there's work for comedians and Yes musicians. but you know what I, I actually think this is really good because I mean I saw Mairead Ronan tweet yesterday going where do you actually go for a dance on a dance floor in Dublin is Coppers the only place you can do it and there was a couple of people suggesting venues yeah. and I was like have we got to that point where you actually have to What are the other venues? Because uh, I had this conversation with someone the other day about how few nightclubs I have a toddler gav so I have well, no idea like yeah, I yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> can't yeah, remember extremely. the last time <laughs> yeah, okay. Weddings are my dance floor now that's where I go dancing but okay. um, yeah I, I I just think it's how but what, we... what were the replies even? So there's I think Coppers someone said and there's... 37 Dawson Street okay. in Dublin I didn't see some 
of the other. I mean, they didn't. I, they didn't. <laughs> I didn't recognize them. So maybe that says a lot about me or maybe yeah. they weren't in Dublin. But I do think that this is, is really good because if you think about it, the problem with the arts is for it to work, it's not going to be commercially viable, right? Exactly. You have yeah. to be absolute mass appeal for things to kind of pay dividends, right? So, and, and people get very upset, especially if we're talking about rising costs of groceries and fuel that you would spend on the arts. However, I mean, if you just, if you really think about how much you reach for the arts during lockdown, yeah, yeah. how much you relied on them uh, for your sanity. Um, but also, I, as I just mentioned, I have an aforementioned toddler, like you are just looking for things to do that aren't based around night Pub. pubs. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I think that, that they have a very um, important place in our society. But if you think about even why lights at Dublin Zoo or any of those big light shows, like yeah. that is culture. That is art. St- stuff that you can go to in an early evening with and a toddler and be entertained. And yeah. it doesn't have to be high, high, high brow or, you know, inaccessible. Like this stuff, we have such a rich talent of people in this country and it should be just I lived in Barcelona for a little while and just talent just eased oozed out of the crevices of everywhere it was just everywhere you Mm. turned and I don't see why we can't be like that in Ireland but you know obviously artists need that backing No I totally agree I think you know if I look at this from a purely kind of political economy perspective I ask myself (laughs) what's socially socially and culturally useful here and I can't think of anything more socially and culturally useful than basically our artist community so 100% if you know that community is not a able to basically earn an income and the state is in a position to ultimately leverage its position mm. to provide a public good which is culture then absolutely it should be directly involved and you mentioned Barcelona that's typically how local governments and local authorities operate right across Europe yeah. the local government is effectively involved in providing local public space and amenities and that also includes providing mm. cultural activities so yeah I, I think it's a good I, idea I, I do need to get to a good break but let me just kind of ask this question first that obviously everyone would welcome there being a very vibrant cultural sector and everyone wants uh, artists and musicians and comedians and, and even yes jugglers, jugglers. To, to, to have the work very important that the state nationalises the juggling sector <laughs> um, but what does it say about how our our tourism sector has gone off a cliff maybe it's just COVID or maybe there's more to it maybe it's just become so expensive that actually the state would have to provide those services rather than just expecting the market to be able to pay for them like it always has done. Yeah, I think a lot of it probably comes down to the fact that, you know, it's just not profitable basically for the private sector to do certain things, right? So therefore, you know, they don't do it. Mm. And just because it's not profitable, it doesn't mean that it's not socially important and socially necessary. And that's where the government steps in and does it. Um, But no, I think you're right. It it surprised me also that, you know, but it doesn't actually surprise you when I look back to the issue about cost of living. You know, it's not, you're not going to command a huge income if you're a juggler right that's just the reality so you know how do you ultimately live in a society well you probably can't afford to live in Dublin City to begin with right you're probably already either living in a smaller town outside of Dublin or you've left the island so yeah I mean I think uh, there's so many different sectors and jobs and occupations that are so socially important that just don't command high wages so it does put a that the state itself mm. you know has a role to play here In the unlikely event that there are any actual jugglers listening uh, do let us know uh, how precarious your income is or what, what is actually the going rate for a shift juggling in any kind of a public venue do let us know 53106 uh, for your text on the record NT is our hashtag on Twitter No jugglers as yet in touch to let us know exactly what they do earn but uh, DJ Dizzy has been in touch and that is the name that they, they do go by and he says that as a DJ doing parties I'm always surprised by the amount of kids who don't know what a musician a a magician is excuse me they don't know what a magician is kids don't know what a magician is Really? 
That's that's that does surprise of, me. It's horrifying, isn't it? it? Their mothers are magicians. Hey, <laughs> nice. That's the way it's done. Uh, Aidan Regan from the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD and uh, journalist broadcaster Aidan Finnegan still with me in studio to go through the, this morning's papers. Um, we did say we were going to have to talk about Tony, but I suppose actually a lot of the pieces today about the, the proposed uh, succumbent of Tony Houlihan are not so much about Tony Houlihan himself as Robert Watt, uh, who had his briefing note on this published this week and which raises some some questions. Um, Aidan, you've been doing some, some digging on what's in the papers today. Yeah, no, lots of coverage on this and I think um, I suppose the starting point and it's shared by by various uh, pieces in the papers today like this is a good idea right to have somebody who is with that expertise and background in public health and public health leadership after just experiencing a two year global health pandemic it's, it's a good idea to have something in our universities where mm. you have a team of people dedicated to this doing research and showing kind of leadership on it so I don't think anybody would disagree that that in itself is a good idea the problem of course is the process through which all of this came about uh, and it's kind of remarkable that you know Robert Watt Stephen Donnelly, the government didn't see this basically as a car crash coming, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's so obvious. I mean, like I'm as, as somebody who works in the university, somebody who works in higher education, and we're struggling every single day trying to get money to do this, get a bit of money to do this piece of research, a bit of money to do that. We're struggling with staff-student ratios. We're trying to get, you know, we have massive problems in terms of the higher education authority and the mm. government in terms of recruitment because of the recruitment embargo from the austerity years. Money is really tight. If you do have a bit of money, the amount of bureaucratic mm. administrative process you have to go through. But it, so is that to say that there shouldn't be a two billion euro fund to try and help out how you avoid another pandemic in future? I mean, that seems like a fairly sensible thing to do, isn't it? Sure. So, but the fact that the government can just magic this up, create this thing, and of course, Trinity's perspective, like, yeah, absolutely. You want to create this for us? We'll take it. Absolutely. But, you know, it would raise eyebrows in terms of, well, you would typically have a competitive process to recruit the right people into these positions. You would have a competitive meritocratic process in terms of competing who should get this funding. It will be transparent about where the funding is actually coming from. I can assure you as an academic, managing even 50 euro, let alone 2 billion, like the amount of paperwork you would have to do to show how you're spending yeah. that. So, so, are, you, I think so process... are you surprised then just culturally because you know the culture of higher yes, education? Exactly. Are you surprised that even as worthy as this is, that it would all seem to have just been hodgepodge? They're like, oh, we'll figure it out. Exactly, exactly. Because that's just not how things typically work like on a day-to-day basis. Um, Aideen, there's uh, plenty of coverage as I say, something that jumped out for you today in the paper. Yeah, I just thought Pat Rabbit's piece in the Business Post, um, it's titled Hulahan Fiasco Caused by Fossilised Law Lodged in the System. And this is the whole, we're going to find out how much did Minister Stephen Donnelly know about this mm. and how much was approved. Which and appears I, to be very little. Which appears to be very yeah. little. And this comes back to uh, Pat Rabbit is pointing out the 1924 Ministers and Secretaries Act, which was cornerstone legislation essentially inherited from the British that governs the relationship between ministers and heads of departments. So it creates an architecture uh, like a rope bridge over a team. You know how Pat Rabbit can, uh, yeah, has, yeah. can get very verbose with these things over a teeming river that allows the minister or the secretary general to hold on to each other for dear life. If either lets go, the other ends up in the river. And it's predicated on the fiction that the minister is responsible for everything that happens in his department. This was never practical but is nowadays impossible. Mm. And I suppose it's interesting he does point out that you know Helen McEntee the Minister for Justice who was on prime time said that if it had happened in her department she would want to know about it. Yeah. So we get into this whole and I think this is where we lose maybe uh, people you know the mass general public because it's a bit like yeah. it turns into a bit of a media story. But do you expect a minister to know everything about the HR arrangements of civil servants, albeit senior and fairly, you know, very visible? Well, exactly. However, if, and this was two million uh, that was going to be um, 
ring fenced yeah. via the HRB, the Health Research Board. Yeah, who, by the way, already had had, the, and I should have read that on the front page of the Business Post earlier on, uh, the Health uh, Research Board had already allocated its budget for this year. So if they were being told that they had to sort out some sort of fund for Tony Hulan to draw from for this year, they would have needed another budget from the Department of Health. Right. Anyway, which maybe uh, Stephen Donnelly should have known about. Exactly. And that's that's what I was getting to because if, if Tony Hulan at the age that he is and this would take him to retirement, it could be up to 10 years. So that's 20 million euro of taxpayers' money. Now that is some amount of money that you would expect the minister to know about. Mm. Um, but I suppose like... And tw- 20, <clears throat> 20 million dedicated to something like this is not necessarily a bad use of taxpayer no. money. O- over the, a 10, no, over a 10, a 10 year, year period. period. Yeah. But the question fundamentally is like the process, right? Who's involved? Is this an open... Com- because there's an enormous yeah. amount of expertise out there. There's lots of people who would like to take these full professor positions and they would like to compete for them, right? And it may well be the case that, that Tony Holland is the best person he competes for. He takes the job mm. and you ha- and recruits a team of people who are dedicated to this. It's a public resource. It's publicly useful, right? Uh, but I just, I just find it really remarkable particularly like someone like someone like Robert Walsh who didn't clearly see the optics of this and didn't understand the kind of the perception that this looks like ultimately you know somebody favouritism yeah, of some sort getting yeah. a bit of money from here putting does, it here does it bother you get, that Stephen Donnelly appears not to have been brought into the loop I find it bizarre that he, he wouldn't have known about this. I take the point that, you know, civil servants are ultimately dealing with HR, but given the, 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 the person, given that we're talking about somebody who was the front face of how the public health, uh, how we responded to the public health crisis for two years was not, I just find it, I find it hard to believe that he didn't know about yeah. it. But also, did Robert Walsh know about the optics? I mean, you know, you were saying that you'd hard to, mm. to imagine. <laughs> But if that's the case, like what you were saying, it's such a good idea. So why can't it be open and transparent about how the money well, is arrived at? What's the, the problem? Time, if they don't just said on March 25th, Tony is leaving because we've arranged this funding where he's going to be going to Trinity, seconded as a health professor, where he's going to be teaching the CMOs of tomorrow and leading some sort of cross-institutional research group with a bit of a slush fund for funding. If they don't just said it all on day one. Exactly. Happy days. And I just, this this is a, seems to be a recurring problem with Irish governments. So there's a sign of, there's a kind of secrecy. You can't do this. You can't do that. Don't say this. And it, all looks slightly murky where often it just requires very common sense good communications this is a good idea there's resources here we're transparent about it this is the public this is how it's going to happen and we'll bring people along mm. if, if, if only they did if they just put it all out there on day one it would have been so much easier sailing uh, we've got a couple of minutes left and we do want to discuss uh, some of the coverage which is extensive in, in some of the particular papers about the uh, the vigils across the country for those two uh, those two awfully unfortunate men who were uh, died in such tragic circumstances in Sligo and the uh, the question of homophobia that it raises and of course we have to be careful about what we say because there is somebody uh, who is uh, awaiting charges uh, for all of this but Aideen there is extensive coverage today in the paper extensive coverage and yeah I suppose the, the, the overall a vibe from it all is that we have come so far but maybe Irish people in general thought that when we had marriage equality that that was job done we have arrived at a place of you know egalitarianism and everything's okay without acknowledging that there's a lot more work to be done and I think I did see someone tweeting as well that um, she was wearing a Sligo Pride t-shirt and she a gang of lads were kind of making this retching kind of vomiting noise in front of her and she was just kind of saying like in case you think this is an imported problem because obviously we have I think homophobia and uh, transphobia and all these other um, issues have kind of become part of a culture war that has been... 
I, I don't want to say imported from America because I think this is the point she's making that we have it here. We have it here within us to be homophobic mm. and to be uh, prejudiced and that we can't ignore that. I, it's interesting as well. There is um, a piece in the Sunday Business Post or the Business Post as it's now called Justice Committee Chair says hate crime bill needs stronger definition. Hate um, legislation has been called for for a long time. Uh, we have an incitement to hatred act came mm. in and, uh, I think 1989 and we've only had five convictions under it. And uh, That's pretty shocking. It is sho- shocking. And so I suppose uh, the Oireachtas Justice Committee is looking, uh, is uh, the pre-legislative scrutiny phase is, mm. is ongoing. And James Lawless, the Fianna Fáil TD, says it's important that Ireland's first hate crime law included a demonstration test to allow a court to consider more than just the motivation of an offender. And, you know, for the fact that... Um, you know, Evan Summers, the rugby player who was uh, attacked in the George yeah. Street area, who was saying that he was shouted, a, a homophobic slur was shouted at him, that would perhaps in that scenario, that demonstrates the aggravating factor mm. of hatred. Whereas I think it's very hard to uh, prove the intent of someone that they were they were mm. motivated maybe uh, by prejudice to carry out an attack. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I'm afraid that we are completely out of time, but just maybe better just to, to leave it lie on that note. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in this morning. Aidan Regan, who's an Associate Professor at the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD and Aideen Finnegan, journalist and uh, broadcaster whose podcast, How to Pivot, is available wherever you get your podcast. 